and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Peter Brooks about his latest book, Seduced by Story, The Use and Abuse of Narrative. Yeah, this really brought me back to my graduate student days. Did you read Reading for the Plot in graduate school? I did. I did it as I read it as part of my oral exams. And I can confess that I read so many books from my oral exams that like I probably retained maybe 40% of what I read. And that was unfortunately not part of the 40%. But but it was nice to it was nice to read this book and return back to Peter Brooks and his scholarship, which has been incredibly influential for literary criticism. And you know, I think now we kind of take for granted what he articulated back in the 80s, that story is so much of the way in which we view the world. And it's no longer maybe a surprising claim, but it certainly was back then. And it's nice to see him return to the subject that he really formed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved reading this book, even though I was not the literary scholar that that you were. <laughs> I just, I rolled my eyes in self-deprecation <laughs> for, uh, for listeners. I also read Reading for the Plot in grad school, though, in my MFA program. And I remember after reading it, like always, you know, trying to think, oh, what story and what's plot in a book or in a novel, in my own work, I would always think about that crucial difference. And it's, and it's, sometimes it's kind of hard to figure out how to even articulate what a plot is and why it matters. But contrast with what a story is and why that matters. But especially in this book, it really is looking at the turn towards storytelling across every aspect of culture. And I'm someone who believes in in stories and learning things through stories. But I think this book and, and Peter's argument, you know, makes the case that perhaps there are other ways we should be learning things. And there's other modes of information gathering and storytelling is so subjective in ways that maybe aren't always beneficial. Totally. Yeah. And I and I think it's good to be reminded to be suspicious of that kind of ubiquitous form of expression as he puts it. That there's something there is something a little bit weird about that and that we should we should pay attention to it and see what it's doing and what it's not doing. Yeah. So let's let's get to the interview. Let's do it. Today we're joined by literary critic and scholar Peter Brooks. Brooks is a Sterling Professor of Comparative Literature Emeritus at Yale. He is the author of many books, but perhaps most notably of Reading for the Plot, originally published in 1984, which initiated the narrative turn in literary criticism. In it, Brooks focused on the story, how it was told, and how it moved forward. His latest book, Seduced by Story, returns to narrative as its main subject 30 years later. Brooks now finds narrative everywhere, from President Bush invoking the stories of all of his cabinet members to corporate websites sites touting the company story. What does this narrative takeover mean? Why have we started to privilege storytelling over any other form of expression? Brooks writes, this suggests something in our culture has gone astray. Peter Brooks joins us today to discuss, as he puts it, the misuses and mindless uses of narrative. Peter Brooks, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. 
So Peter, I thought we could start by having you describe a little bit the time in your life when you came to study narratology. What stage of your academic life were you at and you know what you first made of the discipline? Well, that goes back a long time. I and a group of two or three other friends got very much interested in stories and what they meant and their prevalence in our culture. And obviously, we were under the influence of French structuralism and post-structuralism and narratology. I mean, I think the, the sort of opening gesture of what became narratology was Roland Barthes' essay on introduction to the structural analysis of narrative. We were teaching a course which had several names, but came to be known finally, I think, as narrative and the forms of fiction or something like that. We were talking about fictional narratives and high fictional narratives, things like Faulkner, for instance, but also we were reaching out to look at advertisements and dreams and riddles and other narrative forms, which sort of go way back in our culture to see what the narrative impulse and the reach of narrative is in our culture. So that's where it began. And I'm talking about around 1970, 1970, 72, around then. So we started this course. And then out of that, eventually came a book of mine called Reading for the Plot, which was published in 1984. Most of the chapters in that book came out of my teaching um, in the classroom and lectures that I had given. I'm sometimes, or was sometimes, described at that time as a psychoanalytic critic, and I'm not sure that that's right, but I was very much interested in in Freud, and particularly the kind of speculative Freud, uh, the models he gave for human life, particularly in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and how that might uh, illuminate what we look for in narrative. That's where I began, and this recent book is sort of uh, a disabused sequel to that. <laughs> and I just wanted to follow up and ask, so you came to narratology in the 70s, and then I guess by the 90s, we were in this moment called the narrative turn, or that's when it was labeled the narrative turn in the social sciences as well. Can you describe that move a little bit as well um, and how it started to influence other realms besides literature? Absolutely. In the social sciences, in psychology, in history, of course, in economics, even eventually in medicine, there was a narrative turn. I think very important in labeling this turn was the work of Jerome Bruner, and particularly his essay, which dates from the mid-80s, I believe, called The Narrative Construction of Reality. And um, the notion that the way we construct the world around us and even our own lives is basically narrative. And uh, this seemed to have a lot of echoes in many fields, notably something like philosophy, and I think particularly moral philosophy, people like Charles Taylor, Alastair McIntyre, and others began talking about the importance of narrative and as a description of human life and human belief and so on. So eventually, I mean, Robert Schiller, um, Nobel laureate in economics, 
came to believe that economic ideas were basically narrative, narrative descriptions. Rita Caron invented this field called narrative medicine based on listening to the stories of patients and responding to them. So it, it sort of took over in many different fields, which I think in a way was uh, reaching back to the 19th century, which I see as the golden age of narrative. If you take the major thinkers of the 19th century, which for me are are Darwin, Marx, and Freud, they're all deeply committed to narrative, to narrative descriptions. I think probably the most influential of all is Darwin and his um, notion that you cannot tell what we are today without describing how we became that way, right? This kind of ideological thinking that we are at a stage of development and to understand this, you have to go back and trace the stages of that development. So I think this has been a kind of return to narrative thinking, but um, with a vengeance. I mean, I, my book is partly about the, the takeover of reality by story, the new book. If you could just talk a little bit about some of the examples that you bring up in terms of what this takeover is. What do you mean when you say that there's a narrative takeover? Well, it first really came to my attention with George W. Bush when he was introducing his cabinet. And he began by saying, each of them has such a great American story. And then Colin Powell and then Norman Manetti just said, I love his story. And then it dawned on me that really this was a way of public expression and public thinking that had become very powerful. I think it traces back to Reagan, um, who tended to govern by anecdote, which is a form of supposedly illustrative story. And if you go to Gary Wills's book on Reagan's America, it turns out that sometimes he was confusing real-life anecdotes with movies that he had played in. He couldn't keep the two straight. But, but I think this then became a sort of dominant paradigm for the way politicians discourse to the public, uh, that they had to have stories, they had to have examples of people with stories whom they would bring to their rallies and so on. And then it started affecting, I mean, I'm not sure what the exact sequence is. Um, David Guggen apparently was responsible for the notion of the story of the day that, you know, the White House would put out in the morning, which would then be digested and recycled by the news by the news cycle all day long. And of course, this was also at the same time as the birth of 24-hour news, television news, which has something to do with it. And then corporations and the military and everyone else seemed to become infected by this. You look at the package of cookies you buy, and on the back it says, Our Story. Or you go to almost any corporate uh, website, you'll find they've, they've got a tab to click on. That's just Our Story, sometimes very elaborate. And there seems to be some some claim that if we tell you our story, you'll believe in us, that it makes us real and honest. Um, I'm not quite sure what the great appeal of it is, except that it's supposed to be a form of persuasion to the customer. If you go back to when I was younger, it wasn't so much stories as the singing commercial. I mean, I still can remember some of them from Chiquita Banana or Ballantine Beer. I'm not going to sing them for you, but they were, they were kind of memorable. But that was in the day of radio before TV. Yeah, I think that story has become so central. We forget what other forms of public discourse there could be. Or, you know, of course, as I was reading your book, 
it made me think about NPR, which has kind of become the bane of my existence. Like I really dislike NPR now because I, I think that the, just the continuous amount of stories as opposed to simply reading news items, you know, as discrete items without having to narrati- narrativize every single thing with a structure that is often very familiar and standardized kind of undermines a lot of what's being told. I mean, it's supposed to bring you deeper into a kind of empathetic relationship with the news of the day, but it can also level everything. So I'm curious, besides the kind of singing advertisements, what other forms have we misplaced with the story? Well, let me just pick up on what you said about NPR. I I agree entirely. And NPR now has this project called StoryCorps, where anyone can go and record his, his or her story. And the notion is that this is supposed to somehow bring us all together and provide solutions to our social problems. And it's it's perhaps a noble enterprise, but I just don't see that it makes too much sense. And not only NPR, the New York Times, you now notice every story ineluctably starts with an anecdote. And you say, oh my God, we have to get through this again before we get to what the article's really about. And it's as if we are all too stupid to understand concepts. We have to have it all in form of story. It becomes a kind of universal pablum that everything is a story. But your question as to what has been displaced by this is a very curious one. I mean, there was a form of American civic discourse or oratory, which could also often be misleading, full of lies and so on, but was based on some paradigm of reason, even some sort of dialectical uh, spirit. And it seems to me that that's disappeared in favor of storytelling and the anecdote. You also point out that poetry or the lyric has also been misplaced by story. Well, yeah, and that's what I was referring to with the singing commercial. Those were lyrics, and... uh, I think that, I mean, people are still writing poetry in our society, thank heavens, but it seems to me that in public discourse, the lyric has been downgraded in favor of story. One could go into all sorts of digressions on this. Once upon a time, every American high school and college taught public speaking oratory, right? And there was that tradition, and it was very much part of the law, too, that everyone should be able to argue in public, debate in public. Seems to me that's also been replaced by storytelling. In the introduction, you write about how there's reason to be a little bit suspicious of this turn toward storytelling. Why be suspicious? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that it often represents a kind of dumbing down of uh, discourse, as opposed to say, more more reasoned or philosophical discourse, but also because stories can mobilize people in very bad ways, in good ways too. But I think we've seen recently in this country how story can turn into what you might call myth, stories that people come to believe in, like a stolen election, for instance. And if you don't look at stories critically and analytically, they do tend to become belief myths, and then you're in trouble, right? And you can you can think of all sorts of historical moments where stories like the master race, for instance, turn into myths and mobilize a whole people with dire results. 
Well, yeah, I was grateful for your lack of um, writing on Trump here, but of course, I couldn't help but thinking of what Democrats now call the great lie and the use of that story, which really seems like a means to an end. You know, I think there's something inherent about stories as representing a form of truth, but I don't get a sense necessarily that that story is meant to even be taken as true. And because you speak kind of about this dearth of analysis, I was wondering, like, what what is the public not getting about the great lie or the story of the stolen election? How is it not being analyzed properly that it seems to kind of be intractable? Even the media, for instance, seems to not really address it in a critical way. I mean, it it says it's not true, but it it also doesn't quite break it down for us, maybe using some of the tools that you write about in the book. I think that's absolutely right. And it, it's reinforced by, you know, Fox News and Breitbart and all the rest. And uh, it's sheer repetition and, uh, how should I say, almost the fun of stories like ping pong pizza and, and uh, child molesters take over people's minds. And um, there ought to be a referee standing out there saying, no, look at this story. It's not true. It doesn't work. It's illogical. It doesn't correspond to reality. I mean, I'm not saying that we should elect a universal referee, but Hemingway famously said that a good writer has to have a built-in shit detector. And that seems to have dropped out of public discourse, even in the media that's on our side, you know? The book is structured in the introduction talking about kind of the abuse of narrative and then it parlays more into some what we might think of as just more kind of conventional tools of analysis of literature in later chapters, how one would analyze stories. But in the introduction, you bring in this really crucial distinction that I'd love for you to talk about these terms, fabula and sujet, if I'm saying that correctly. Those are... Russian terms? Those are terms that come from Russian formalism. And Lord knows I can't pronounce them any better than you. But a fabula refers to the story as it happened out there in the world in a sort of normal chronology from A to Z, where sujet is the way it's presented in the narrative discourse. And when you think about it, any telling of a story has got to be selective and very often For emphasis, it will start at the end or in the middle, as the classical Aristotelian formula. So it's always a shaping of the story. And when you think further about that, most of the time, all you know is the sujet, the way it is presented in a narrative discourse, in a book, in a film, whatever, on TV. And you don't have the facts on the ground except as they've been presented. This becomes a real problem in the law. I mean, I think the law has been blind, really, to the importance of storytelling in the law. Just the facts, please, is the point of view of the law, but it's very rare that we have just the facts without the way that they've been colored or presented or slanted by the narrative telling. You said that a lot of reading for the plot came from your teaching and your students. I wonder if you have found that students are interacting differently with storytelling now than they had been when you first began teaching the subject. Boy, that's a difficult question, partly because <laughs> I I just don't 
teach about narrative the way I did because I assume now that a lot of what I was saying 50 years ago, gosh, it is almost 50 years ago, is part of the culture, and I don't have to say it anymore. On the other hand, I know that formal narratology, though it's become a very sophisticated discipline and it has its adepts and it's got a, a school at Ohio State and, and a journal and all the rest, it is of less interest, I think, to students than it once was. Again, because I think that they assume that they know all that. That's under their belt as part of the culture. So I think now what I discover is that students' knowledge and reaction to narrative is just so much more visual than it once was. You know, I mean, this is how they know stories much more than was true for my generation, for instance. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Peter Brooks, author of Seduced by Story. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I'm so happy to have Daryl Pinkney back on the line. Daryl Pinkney is the author of many books, and his latest is Come Back in September, A Literary Education on West 67th Street, Manhattan. And Daryl has a book for us. What are you going to recommend? Seduction and Betrayal, Women in Literature by Elizabeth Harvard. Constructing a Nervous System by Margot Jefferson. Oh, and Mario and Alicia, An Unreliable Memoir by Marina Warner. But I probably have the parents' name as well. Okay, so three books. Tell me more about them, why you're recommending them. Well, Marina Warner, you know, she's this fantastic scholar. So she's telling the story of her parents' meeting at the end of the war. Her mother's Italian, her father's British, and a certain kind of British guy. And she grows up, her early years are in Cairo. So she's describing the end of a certain kind of Britishness through the end of it in Egypt. And it's a really fascinating and rather honest and romantic story. Margot Jefferson, you know, she has this way of writing about Black life that's like nobody else, what she can see and what she feels. And constructing a nervous system is about the things that influenced her when she was growing up and a young woman. And there are sort of passages on, say, what's different about Ella Fitzgerald sweating. It's just amazing. Or something on whiteness and Willa Cather. It's very startling. It's a very intelligent book. And Seduction and Betrayal is a very good place to begin reading Elizabeth Hardwick's criticism. It's very sort of passionate and learned and profoundly not academic. I haven't read the Marina Warner, but the other two, of course, I read, and Margot was a, a guest on our show for Constructing a Nervous System. And I could say that her and Elizabeth Hardwick are both amazing stylists. Like, that's kind of their signature, both of them. Is Marina Warner also that way? Yes, she has her voice, and it's this kind of um, flow of information. You know, she can't help herself. Marina has to tell you what she knows, and it's all sort of fascinating. Elizabeth Harbick has an ear like few others, and it is like a poet's ear. She didn't write poetic prose. She had a kind of poetry maker's relationship to language. And... Margot's book, you know, the openness of her composition is one of the freedom of the thinking in it. 
you know, that it's not sort of conventional reactions. And I think a lot of the stage is in constructing a nervous system, this feeling of something theatrical or the spoken, these lines, you know, there's Adrian Kennedy sort of is her friend in here. <laughs> yeah. And you also had some time in the theater. Well, they're Robert Wilson days and they still go on. I owe him a great debt. And his theater to me is still wonderful. He's doing Ubu based on Ubu Wa in Palma. And I've only seen sort of the drawings and the pictures from the stage, but I don't know how he does it. The rabbit always comes out of the hat, you know, and people say they're surreal and this and that. And they're not. Everything Bob does is an answer to a technological problem on stage. And mm. they're always just beautiful. So to work with him over a number of years, it's been a kind of great pleasure and a big learning experience and a pain in the ass at times. <laughs> Speaking of taking the rabbit out of the hat, tell us the name of these three books again, where all these writers definitely get that rabbit. Seduction and Betrayal, Elizabeth Hardwick. Constructing a Nervous System, Margot Jefferson. And let's just call it an unreliable memoir, Marina Warner, but it's actually got the parents' names in the title. I just forget them. Thank you so much, Daryl, for coming back and sharing those recommendations with us. That was Daryl Pinkney. His new book is Come Back in September, A Literary Education on West 67th Street, Manhattan. to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Peter Brooks, author of Seduced by Story. I was interested in your chapters as you segue more into kind of classical literary scholarship with the state of the novel from its beginning as being as you write, kind of concerned with the consequences of how a story came to be known. That is a shift from early novels, you know, that there's this letter in the beginning to the reader, like, I found these letters in this place and here's how I will present them to you. Or, you know, some other, I found this document here and that that was a big motif of early storytelling was the talking about kind of where the story comes from and that that even in in terms of what you see as like very schlocky storytelling when you write about girl on the train is that what I didn't read that one but um that what really bothers you about it is that the book narrates a scene of death that it would actually be completely impossible for the narrative voice to be able to narrate their own death so that even in this kind of fiction from its beginning, there are rules and there is concern with how information is coming into a story. And I thought that was a really crucial distinction as we're talking now about something like The Great Lie or just that form that the novel has always had some of these questions about truth baked in. Yeah, I mean, let me just say that the first chapter of the book is largely polemical, and I look at the other chapters following it as kind of, what, a hygiene <laughs> on narrative, talking about ways you could more sensibly and analytically look at it. You're absolutely right. The novel from early on is concerned with what I call 
epistemological issues. How, how can we know this? How can the narrator come by the stories that he's telling us? And there's all these devices of, you know, letters found in a trunk or passed on from one person to another, which give some sense of authenticity to what's been given. And um, in the 18th century, the novel is very much trying to establish its bona fides. And it is obviously fiction, but it has to convince the reader that the story is in some sense true. And so I think novelists have always been very much concerned with the authenticity of what they're saying doesn't mean that they can't be imaginative or you can't have magic realism or whatever, but there's got to be some sort of basis for the conviction that they create in the reader if the text is good. I was amazed by this remark of Henry James when he was rereading his work to write prefaces for his earlier fictions. In, in the last of those, on the Golden Bowl, where he says that anything he decided must be better than the irresponsibility of mere muffled authorship, a great phrase. What does he mean by irresponsible authorship? Well, he says it's always better to have your story told through someone who listened to it or who heard it, on whom it made an impression, who was involved in it, then simply through the authority of the absent author. I mean, that's only one way to go about it, but James is certainly on to something, that we want to know where stories come from, what vouches for them, right? And it seems like that mode of telling already establishes just a bit of a gap you know, it's like these stop mechanisms for us to contemplate and to analyze that it's not just a pure, you know, story injected into the veins, but there's some curve that sets it off from reality even that is already establishing the narrativity that you talk about, that Bart writes about as well. No, that's right. That this, you are entering a special space of narrative fiction and there are rules there, and that's one reason I got so offended by one of the three principal characters in The Girl on the Train recounting her own death, because it is a kind of whodunit book, right? And um, there are rules for detective fiction, and you've got to more or less stick to them, and one of them is that a dead character can't tell the story. Yeah, it made me think about autofiction, which is very much like the in way to write these days. And it seems like partly because that you point out, you know, it's saying life is not formally structured like a novel. So it should be more kind of loose, but also that people focus so much on the connection between an author and a narrator and how much it really is the person who's writing. And that seems like it's not the point, especially from your point of view, that's really not the point at all of novels, that novels aren't supposed to be a narration of real life, that there is some separation, that they're a form of play, that they're something else, that they give us a structure that life cannot give us. And I wondered if you could talk about that. That's a very deep and interesting question. Yes, I mean, autofiction presents itself often as sort of unmediated uh, telling of personal experience. And I would set it in contrast to the kind of, of novel that became very popular, I think, in the early 20th century, which is the 
ironic first-person narrative in people like André Gide, or there's some of that in Faulkner too, where you had to, you definitely had to beware of the novelist. Something like Gide's novel, The Immoralist, as he says himself at the very end when he's talking to his friend, have I completely misunderstood what my story is about? And that kind of play with the reader, or, or in someone like Nabokov or Pynchon, I think often leads to a more intelligent kind of relation between fiction and reality. The autofiction movement, I think, has all sorts of degrees within it. I mean, after all, you can say that Proust's In Search of Lost Time is an autofiction also. But if you say that, you miss a lot of what's going on, right? Because it's not just a, a first-person confession. Or look at someone like Annie Elno, who just won the Nobel Prize. Her novels, in some ways, they're all about her life, and they're very similar very often, yet they are... They're skewed for artistic reasons. I mean, the, the narrator is not identical with any Elno herself, though you may think she is. Autofiction also raises the interesting question of tellers and listeners and what narratives are trying to do to listeners and how they're trying to... I mean, novels, novels are not written in a void. If you write a novel, you have some imagined reader in your mind or a hoped-for reader at least, right? And so there is, you're trying to transfer something from yourself to your reader. And so I'm interested in stories, what we often call frame tales, which actually dramatize that. Something like Conrad's Heart of Darkness, right? Where you have someone speaking, sitting on this ship in the Thames, waiting for the tide to turn, and you have his listeners. And um, you have that subtle interplay between the teller and the listeners, which I think is something that goes on in any story, whether there's a dramatized listener or not. Yeah, I think part of the implication here is in rethinking of, or thinking about who the teller is, is also thinking about who the listener is and audience. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit, just a little bit more about that in terms of how you are, if there has been a shift in the kind of listenership that people can provide to stories or a shift in the kinds of different audiences that exist in the world of storytelling and the different kinds of stories that are told. Well, certainly there has been a shift. And, and if you go back to the, the oral tradition, I, I quote that kind of amazing passage introduction from Richard Burton to his translation of the Thousand and One Nights, the Arabian Nights, about what oral storytelling in an Arab community is like and how people who are presumably mostly illiterate absorb and drink up the story. But I think we have some of the same experience in the television serial and something like Game of Thrones, for instance, becoming utterly absorbed and sort of bereft when the story ends or the episode ends. So I'm not sure there's that been that much difference, except that now knowing that tradition, storytellers play on it in very sophisticated ways. I mean, we mentioned Nabokov, Pynchon, you know, you could name hundreds of people who And it's not just 21st century authors. Go back to 
to someone like Dickens and the way he involves the reader in constructing the story, or, or Balzac, who loves stories where there are tellers and listeners, or even when there's a kind of chain story going on. So things have changed, but I think our thirst for story remains very similar now. So somebody like Pynchon, you know, where over and over it feels like the narrators often in his books can't quite don't ever know the full story, that they're very, very paranoid, that there's there's a bigger story out there that they're trying to get to and they cannot. And I wonder if you think that we're post that kind of storytelling, if we are in a more straightforward moment than the kind that Pynchon was, was in and still is. He's alive as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you think we've become more straightforward since then. Or more, I think that there was like some, at least in the way that I have understood it, that there was some sense of of skepticism of storytelling, right? In Pynchon's moment and in, you know, and it, this moment seems somewhat different, though I'm not quite sure how. It may be that there was a kind of playfulness associated with, with modernism, and particularly what got known as postmodernism. You can see it in architecture as well as in storytelling. And that moment maybe has now passed. I mean, I don't know what moment we're in now. It's post-postmodernism, but there seems to be a great deal of, uh, yeah, of seriousness about storytelling at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it's partly that what we have now is such a proliferation of storytelling that a narrator can't get to the one big story that's hidden behind what he understands or sees and it's more that there's thousands of little ones. Yeah, I think that's true. We're inundated with story. I mean, it's just stories everywhere. But I think clever novelists can play off that and and do. I mean, one of the books I read recently, it seems to me, um, does that very nicely. What was that? Hervé Letellier, The Anomaly. L'Anomaly, have you read that? It's a very clever I novel. I have a copy. It's, I mean, it's it sort of borders on sci-fi in a sense, but it isn't really that. And it has wonderfully realist descriptions, such as one of a, a turbulent flight from Paris to New York, which is absolutely hair-racing. But then what happens after that, I mean, I won't try and tell you the plot, but everyone gets doubled. So there are two of each person on the plane. And um, there's another plane that comes that has the doubles of the people. Very imaginative novel, I think, and very playful in a very serious way. (laughs) You wrote a couple novels. Yeah. As you mentioned here. What did that teach you about your study of narratology or long-time study of literature that just studying books you know, on their own, couldn't? Well, you know, I've been interested in plot, but I find plotting the most difficult thing to do. And in both my novels are historical novels, and both of them, therefore, have a kind of armature, which is an historical incident. And I was trying to remain absolutely faithful to that, even though I was using some invented characters around it. So that gave me an armature. But what I found really interesting and really difficult was just every morning sort of trying to pull out the story from your own mind, but have it other people's minds, right? I mean, projecting yourself into these characters. I mean, the second novel, The Emperor's Body, had three principal characters, two men and a woman, and just 
trying each day to imagine what that person would do next or think next and so on. I found it absolutely extraordinary experience, very difficult. And I do have a chapter in this book on the allure of imaginary beings. And you know, why is it that we are willing and desirous of spending so much time with people who don't exist? What do we hope to bring back from that? I think the experience of trying to, to write novels was very helpful in thinking about that. I wanted to ask you that, actually. <laughs> what did you learn, I mean, from writing that novel or from those novels about spending time with these imaginary characters? Well, I think we, I mean, our own lives are, are limited, uh, no matter how adventurous they may be. I think being able to look out through someone else's eyes, as Proust says, is the supreme adventure. And I think that's one thing we always have looked for in novels, is to experience things through someone else and be convinced of that. As even in children's games, you can at the same time know it's fictional, it's not real, but have a true experience of what it's like to be in someone else's skin. And I think that's just extraordinary. And I think to try and write that without it just being yourself. And there I come back to James's notion that it's always more exciting to record experience through the consciousness of someone else. You know, this book kind of brings to my mind a, a real irony, which is that we're kind of swimming in stories, more stories than ever. Narrative has taken over, you know, the public sphere. And yet in the institution, the humanities are often, you know, declared on life support. They're not important anymore. People are wondering how can we get people interested in literature and, and other humanities. I just, I don't understand. That seems like a real strange place to be where the study of the thing that is all around is disappearing. So maybe, you know, just speak to that. And I'm sure there's lots of administrators trying to figure out how to reverse the trend. But as someone who worked at a university for most of your professional life, are there any ideas that you had on the ground? Well, you know, I think that over and over again, people have proved that the humanities actually can be very exciting to students. It's just that administrators on the whole don't believe that and parents don't believe it. I mean, that anyone who teaches literature has had that experience for a couple of decades now of students saying, I'd love to major in English, but my parents tell me I can't. I have to major in something practical. And I think the whole culture uh, tells them that, you know, um, take STEM subjects, um, if you major in English or philosophy, you'll never get a job. And a lot of truth in that. But uh, it's such an instrumental culture that tells you what you need to learn is what will get you money and get you ahead, right? And so pushing for the humanities becomes a kind of counter-cyclical enterprise saying, no, look, we stop for a moment, learn to think critically about the world and about yourself. And I think when students do, uh, they actually find great pleasure in humanities courses. And I think that's been shown over and over again. I mean, the right, the cultural right has made a, a point a long, for a long time that, you know, the canon has been destroyed, that we're not reading Shakespeare anymore. There are statistics that show there are more people reading Shakespeare at the moment in this country than ever did in the past, you know. So I think when a university is willing to 
stick up for the humanities and invest in them, hire some faculty, for heaven's sakes, and uh, even maybe require a course or two in the humanities, it pays off. I think we touched on this a little bit, but you finish your book on talking about the importance of a sense of play. And I wonder if you could just explain that a little bit more in terms of, because I think we've talked about the sort of very serious aspects of storytelling and narrative, but what about the sense of play do you find valuable in terms of storytelling? Yeah, well, I like to trace storytelling back to make-believe and even children's make-believe, playing games of where you assume, take on roles, you know, You'll be the mother, I'll be the father, whatever. This will be a fire engine. That's very important in childhood. And I think it's part of what keeps us interested in fictions and gaming of all sorts later in life. And I mean, reality is given to us and it can be very harsh. And fiction is one way of creating a kind of space of human freedom through play within it. And you know, and you know, half of your mind knows that it is just fiction and that it's not reality. It's not going to change what goes on in your life and your death, but it gives you a space to think about it and to try different hypotheses about life if you want to. This is very tangential. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> but have you ever seen this show Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal? No. Have you seen it, Kate? Oh, so I think you'd be interested in it. It's a TV show on HBO. It's run by this comedian, though I I think he's more of a performance artist really in the end than he is a comedian. It's called The Rehearsal. And what he does is he finds people to rehearse important events in their lives. It's a little bit like Remainder. Tom McCarthy's book, where they rehearse confessing something to someone and he hires an actor to play the person they're confessing to and they rehearse through the very, you know, hundreds of different scenarios and how that confession might play out. That the actor performs being angry, being understanding, being upset, and the person plays themselves in that scenario, rehearsing different things that they will then act out in their actual lives and that will then be filmed for TV as part of a TV show. And yeah. Well, I, well, and I, wrote what, a, I wrote a book about confessions. So that's interests me a great deal. Yes, I think you'd be really interested in it. And one of the things, I don't want to give it away, I guess. I mean, there's no twist. It's a reality show. But there's a point at which he, this woman is rehearsing having children. And what Nathan Fielder does is he hires child actors to play children at different stages of life and she plays their mom and she's supposed to figure out whether she wants to be her mom by mothering these actors essentially until one of the kids the difference between fact and fiction becomes too confusing he can no longer tell what's real and what isn't and I recommend it because there was a certain point where like well of course it's going to be a child who can't who can't quite tell the distinction between what is real and what isn't and experiences the breakdown of those things most personally. Right. Yeah. No, no, that's that's very interesting. And that's where psychoanalysis comes in to some extent, right? People who cannot tell the difference between the fictional and the, and the real in their lives and need to get it reorganized. No, I think confession is an extraordinary topic. And it, we live in a confessional culture, uh, clearly, but... Um, 
vouching for the authenticity of a confession is sometimes difficult. And even in the law, I think confession is much overused. There's always more than enough guilt to go around, but it may not be the guilt that you want. You can always get people to confess. It's the, I think the police have proved, you know, post Miranda versus Arizona, which set the, the rules for interrogations and confession, they found that it's easier than you think to get a confession. It's just not maybe to be believed always. I guess that's an example of where narrative really can become life or death. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it needs attention, clearly. My last chapter is is about the law and uh, how I think that law is shot through with narrative from the courtroom where you have competing stories and then one convinces the jury and leads to conviction. And then on the appellate level, it gets retold. And the way it's retold can be very tendentious. I mean, any story has a has a tendency or tendency, right? Um, and the way it is told often determines the outcome. And if you get into something like of stories of narratives of rape, where what happened happened, you know that. Uh, the question is, is it going to be told as a story of consent or is it going to be told as a story of rape? There's an extraordinary case in Baltimore, Maryland, from some time ago that I've taught, where it goes up two appellate levels, and the the man is convicted in court. The first appellate level exonerates him and says nothing in this story was about force or rape. It had to be consensual. Then it goes to the top court in Maryland, which reverses again and says, of course, it was rape. And so on each level, you have a majority and a dissent telling the story. And you know it's the same story. The facts are not in dispute. But the way they color it, the way they come at it, and the prejudices, they're mostly male justices, um, that they bring to it. It's extraordinary and and eye-opening, I've got to say. So I think the law could do with a much more analytic approach to narrative and the way it's told. I found this one case called Old Chief versus United States where David Souter, when he was a justice, um, has a riff upon what he calls narrative integrity and how story can convince a juror to find someone guilty in a way that more abstract language can't. For Souter, narrative is kind of ethics in action, if you will. But then it is a riff because then he turns around and says, we got to be suspicious of story and not have too much of it in the law because we don't want to judge people on their lives, on their characters, but on the specific incident at hand. It's really quite a brilliant reflection on story, which has never been picked up in any subsequent Supreme Court cases. Maybe that's your next book. Well, I'm not sure it's a whole book. (laughs) Maybe an essay. (laughs) Well, we'll look forward to that. And thank you so much, Peter Brooks, for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Peter Brooks. His latest book is called Seduced by Story, The Use and Abuse of Narrative. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. 
Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden. <laughs>